Welcome to How I Got Here, the podcast that explores the inspiring journeys of remarkable individuals. I'm your host, Drina Whitfield, and today I'm thrilled to introduce our special guest, Felicia. Join us as we explore the life of Felicia Hatcher, who is the CEO of the Pharrell Williams Black Ambition Opportunity Fund and the co-founder of the renowned Black Tech Week Conference. Felicia's story is a testament to the power of determination, resilience, and the transformative impact of education. Felicia Hatcher, thank you so much for joining me today on How I Got Here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to uh, chat with you, learn a little bit more about your journey, kind of dive into some of the tips and suggestions that you give entrepreneurs across your social platforms. But before we even get there, I'd like to take it all the way back to high school and ask this question of every guest that comes on the podcast. And that's like, so when you were graduating high school, what did you write in your yearbook when it said, Felicia will be X, Y, Z in 10 years? Did you write anything oh my like gosh. special then? I wish I remembered what I wrote. So <laughs> uh, I don't remember what I wrote, but I just, I knew I, I was a little jaded at that time, if that makes any sense, because I was, I was a C student in high school, right? And I tell that story quite often. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know if I was going to go to college as far as like being able to afford it. I also didn't have the best grades. So like I was... It was at that time where like all my friends were like getting accepted into like top schools. And I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, I had to tell people I'm going to community college. So like senior year was like really weird for me. And then like it closed out with a bang because I end up winning like one hundred thirty thousand dollars in scholarships. Right. And like my whole mind got warped in that year (laughs) about like what was possible. So like by the end of the year, you couldn't tell me nothing. Right. But like of like what's possible. But at the beginning of the year, it was just like. I don't know what I'm, was going to happen with my life or what I'm going to do or the path that I'm going to be on. Then coupled with someone that I like respected and trusted telling me that I'd never make it to a college or a university. And so like I, I could have wrote a number of things. So I'm going to have to go back and look and see what I wrote because now, <laughs> now you got me curious. Did winning that enormous amount of scholarships prompt your, I guess, your decision to write the C Students Guide to Scholarships? Oh, absolutely. You know, it was for a lot of people and I coach a lot of entrepreneurs given like the work that I've done over the past almost 10 years now. And so sometimes people have this epiphany about what's possible or getting creative with limited resources later in life. And I got that like snatched edge edges moment at 17 (laughs) years old, you know, and so it changed everything for me. One, someone not believing me and telling me that things aren't possible or limiting the trajectory of my life at 17. And this person did not know me aside from what they saw on a computer screen and like a GPA, right? Mm -hmm. Realizing I was not a walking GPA and none of us are a walking embodiment of our circumstances, especially when they're limited circumstances. And like reflecting now, these I was like, these were massive lessons. At 17, I was just like, I'm going to show this woman. You know what I mean? And so right. I started my first business as a freshman in college at Lynn University. And it was educational consulting. So like literally creating college prep programs and scholarship prep programs for organizations and colleges to teach often like non-traditional students like I was, like how to get into college you know, how to, their personal marketability, right? And how to shift that so people focus on the things that they were winning a gold medal in and not necessarily about their grades. And and then like a lot of it was just like mindset, right? Like you can either mm-hmm. believe that opportunities were only afforded to, you know, the honor students and, you know, everyone that's winning these enormous like scholarships and things like that. Or you can realize that there's one more than one pathway to success, and so when I, I created all this content, like all this stuff. And so when I closed that business, I decided to write a book to kind of close out the chapter of me doing that work, but still mm-hmm. be able to support like parents and, and young people. And so that's where that first book, The Sea Student's Guide to Scholarships, right? A creative guide to find scholarships when your grades suck and your parents are broke, because that was literally my reality back then. Mm. And so like a lot of kids often get in front of that guidance counselor or just person that does not know them and does see their GPA and just like their school record and and 
basically shares the same news that you received, like basically like you're not getting into a four-year college and some of them get stuck there or don't have a support system to really push them to think beyond what that person has shared with them. How did you move past that, especially at such a young age when like literally that can just like, you know, deter you from wanting to do anything further? Yeah. And, you know, and it's the same thing that we see happen with adults, right? From mm-hmm. a career standpoint, entrepreneurs, when like they're pitching their, their their business, like the same thing happens if you're not careful about who you are receiving information from. Mm-hmm. And is this person even qualified to tell you about what the rest of your life is going to look like or the, the direction that you should go? And so, you know, for me, I like I would be lying if I told you that it didn't affect me, right? Like when I literally thought like the worst case scenario, because this person's job title, like her job title and description said guide, right? Guidance, guidance counselor. And so you hold on and you put people of authority, no matter who they are on some sort of pedestal, right? Of like, this person must know what they're talking about. And when you're young, you don't fully understand the way bias plays, the massive role that bias plays in the advice that is oftentimes given to you. And mm-hmm. I didn't realize that at 17 years old, right? I, you know, I think on the on some of the positive side, like I got a Jamaican mother, right? That was just like, <laughs> you going to college. Mm-hmm. And, and so there was that, but it was also like, you know, you and your brother are going to college or you're going to the military, Either one, you got to get out this house and you got to figure out how to pay for your own education because they couldn't. My mom and my dad were in college while my brother and I were in high school. So they were tapped. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it was it was that also coupled with someone telling me I'd only make it to, you know, I should go get a job or go to a vocational school and like not even community college. And they accept kind of like like they literally got programs to accept anyone. And so you know, her thought process or her advice on like, not even go seek out a program that can help you get to the next level, but like nothing advanced education will be for you is so troubling and so problematic. Right. And it's like stirring up all these emotions now that I think about it, but it, it happens to more young people than we realize And so having someone in Mm -hmm. your corner that's going to hold you accountable or has a higher expectation than you may have of yourself in this moment is extremely important. And I always tell people, you know, sometimes if you don't have that belief in yourself right now, like borrow somebody else's belief in you. And -hmm. like that other person's belief actually came from the career counselor, Marissa Fontaine, who like is a near, was a near and dear friend of mine who recently passed away this year. And like, you know, what she said to me wasn't even like this big, warm advice at the time. It was literally this conversation and passing where like my high school had this thing called Scholarship Wednesdays. Drina, it sounded way more sophisticated than it really was. <laughs> but they just put all the applications out on a table Wednesday during lunchtime. Right. And I remember going there as kind of like this last ditch effort. And I looked around the table and I was getting ready to leave because I was like, there's nothing here for me. And what she said to me was like, Felicia, before you leave, like, just look at everything again with a fresh set of eyes, because you're coming in here with like the baggage of your guidance counselor telling me, telling you you'll never make it with all the like seeing everyone else getting their acceptance letters and getting good news and you're not getting anything. And so you're looking at this opportunity that's on this table with a limited set of eyes. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And so I pick up all the applications. I go home. And when I take the time to look at it with the different set of eyes that she told me to look at it, I then start seeing that there was all these opportunities that didn't ask for GPAs or the GPA requirements were really low or like you could write an essay about bees or like you could join the golf mm-hmm. club and apply for like this golf scholarship. And then like my, the possibilities opened, right? It's so like having someone sometimes just drop something into you completely reframes everything that you thought about. We, we became really great friends. She helped me after that, but it was literally like this moment in passing of this woman I didn't really know that created this one specific small opportunity and literally said something to me that I literally take that message with me everywhere I've gone and 20 years since graduating high school. Mm, I love that. So you graduate high school, you go to college, you launch your first business and write your first book. What's the next step after you write that book? 
<laughs> I wrote that book. I then entered the really crazy industry of experiential marketing. <laughs> and so by responding to a Craigslist ad that changed the whole trajectory of my life. And so I ended up getting a series of jobs that were actually really cool jobs that paid probably too much money for like a 22 year old <laughs> that I traveled around the entire United States marketing products and doing product launch campaigns for some of the biggest companies in the world. Right. And so Walgreens was like the first company that I did that work for literally traveling from city to city, almost kind of like on a, a, a PR campaign and like also managing this kind of tricked out RV that did like free health screenings. And then Wells Fargo's like college tour. And then I uh, worked for Nintendo on two really big, long campaigns, launching the Wii Fit and Wii Sports Resort and Little Debbie Snack Cakes traveling around in this pimped out Airstream, uh, collecting a million smiles when like social media first. And so like that was my mm-hmm. life for maybe five to six years, somewhere mm-hmm. around there. Met some of the coolest people in the world, was making a few thousand dollars a week, like literally marketing products and being paid to travel around the United States. And so I've literally been to every state in the United States, if not one, if not for one day, at least a week. And so, um, and I mean, probably some of the most, I have the most random stories that I could tell about marketing and experiential marketing and like social media. And, you know, the fact that we know all this stuff now, but you know, this was 15 plus years ago, right? Where people didn't even fully understand social media being like a business utility, but like Nintendo and these companies that were spending millions of dollars to figure this stuff out. Like I was literally like the grassroots person kind of out in the marketplace, like making these things happen and creating these experiences. So people had like immersive experiences walking into brands. And so that was my early twenties and it was the most random, but the most coolest time of my life. And off of Craigslist 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 was like legit, kind of. Right. When it was legit, but still also a little sketchy. So you never right. know what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I was going to say, and this is just like at the beginning of, it sounds like the social media boom, like when you had to have like mm-hmm. an actual like college address to like create a Facebook account. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like very, around that time where like, even when like people were just starting to follow food trucks through like Twitter, mm-hmm. you know, like all of that was when all of this stuff was like cooking for me. Mm, so you have like a pretty hefty like knowledge of like marketing, social. So when did you jump into the tech field? Yeah. So some of the tech stuff started like in the experiential marketing, right? So for mm-hmm. Nintendo yeah. launching Wii Fit and Wii Sports Resort. And so working on like the product launch of, of those products Wells Fargo's Second Life video game. Like I worked with with that and the launch of that. And then um, Sony, when it launched the ebook reader, which I always tell people should have been like the iPad, but that's a whole other story for for another time. (laughs) And so like that was like my first professional foray into that. Mm -hmm. But I also, I like, I taught myself how to code when I was 16. And like, I was one of those kids, right? Like I could rewire cable into my bedroom when, my parents bought me a TV for Christmas, but they wouldn't give me cable in my room because they didn't really want me to watch the TV. And um, <laughs> so just like a very curious kid and a, and a kinesthetic learner, right? And so like mm-hmm. technology entered my life back then. I was like one of the first of my friends. I know this sounds so old, but first of my friends to get like a laptop <laughs> and then quickly broke the laptop and then tried to put the laptop back together. You know, so it was... Like being able to be curious and tinker since I was 16 years old and then entering the tech space, but like on the marketing side. And then when we launched like Code Fever and like Black Tech Week, it was like the community and ecosystem side of knowing that this massive opportunity existed and then wanting to make sure like our community was an active participant and like a financial beneficiary of all of that mm-hmm. then ran like a, a, a like had a like a software side hustle for a bit like so it was all these like very non-traditional ways of like being in the tech space so i was going to ask like what led to the launch of black tech week what prompted that 
We launched Code Fever first. Okay. And Code Fever was a coding school for African-American and Caribbean youth based here in, in Miami. And um, we launched it at a time where like Miami startup ecosystem was just starting to sprout up. And it was it was not inclusive of the black community at all. Mm-hmm. And my husband and I were running a food company that we wanted like we knew we weren't going to be running that food company forever, but like we had all these high school students that were working for us that we really wanted them to get into coding and technology. And so we literally like shut down our store for a day and we were like, we're going to teach y'all how to code, like bring and invite some of your friends and we'll get all of our friends that are like, you know, developers to just come together and like share with you everything that they know. And we Mm -hmm. had only expected like maybe 20 people, right? Like our employees, their friends, maybe they'll invite a parent or two. And we had over 80 people show up that day. And oh, wow. it was the most amazing thing ever. And no one was teaching kids how to code. Like It sounds so foreign now, right? But like no one was teaching black kids how to code at that time. And we weren't planning on ever doing it again. It was just like a one day thing. You know, they'll meet our friend who was like a college dropout that worked for Apple for 10 years. And like, they'll meet this other friend that worked for like, you know, the early days of Facebook. Like that was just the plan. And then we were literally bombarded for weeks after that from parents. Like, when are you going to do this again? And we're like, we're not like we got a business. (laughs) And and I I tell you that story because we started off teaching kids. Right. And we started getting more Mm -hmm. and more pulled into you know, helping them navigate the startup ecosystem and the tech ecosystem as young people of color. But then also we quickly realized that if we were not careful with what we were doing, we would actually be doing more harm than good. Meaning that like we felt like we were kind of in like this train and pray model, right? Like we're training you for the jobs of the future or jobs in the tech space but like we're praying that there's an actual opportunity on the other end of that. And we could not ensure that, nor could we promise that. Mm-hmm. And so Black Tech Week came out of a way to ensure and promise and then expose them to like emerging technology and cool people that look like them in the tech space. And then, you know, maybe it's a way for them to be able to get their next internship and like their next job opportunity. Like that was the original idea for Black Tech Week. And then it expanded mm-hmm. upon there because then we got college students involved and they were looking for jobs. And then, you know, startup founders were wanting to connect with investors. And we just started attracting like literally some of the biggest names in tech and innovation and dreamers and people that were curious and like investors to come to Miami during February. And like the last part of why we started it was just We also wanted to kind of shift what was happening during Black History Month Mm -hmm. to also be thinking about the future of where Mm -hmm. we could go and celebrating like the icons and innovators of today and tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Right. And so like it was kind of like a hodgepodge of all of those things as to to why we started it to begin with. Love it. the, The thing I mean, the thread that I'm noticing is like. At your core, you're an entrepreneur, right? So like mm-hmm. you started your first business right after college. You launched your, you wrote your first book. Then is it, is the timeline, then you launched uh, Feverish Ice Cream and then Code Fever and mm-hmm. then Black Tech Week. Is that kind of the line of yeah. events? Yeah. Talk to me about Feverish Ice Cream though. So like what made you, like how did that come about? Was it just like out of your love for ice cream? <laughs> Pseudo, mostly from a love of just desserts, period. Like I, (laughs) I love desserts so much. I got married at a hippie donut shop in Portland, Oregon, 13 years ago. Oh, I love it. Yeah. We eloped. Everyone knew we were going to elope and that's where we decided. And it was one of those cities that we visited along, you know, my travels and experiential marketing. But I also discovered like Mexican paletas during that time as well. Spending a lot of time in like working in California and then some trips to Mexico. And I just, I love desserts, right? And I would tell people like sometimes a good paying job will standing in the way of you following your dreams just as much as a bad paying job because I loved, loved, loved the work that I was doing with Nintendo. But like I was also starting to compromise some things that I didn't feel comfortable with, right? And nothing mm-hmm. against the company. It was just mm-hmm. my job was 100% travel working in experiential marketing for this company. And so, like, I would miss 
weddings and funerals and like special events for my friends and my families. Yeah. I was missing big moments and it was starting to weigh on me. And then I also wanted to figure out a way to like get back to Florida, right? Like it was calling me in a lot of ways. And so when the economy tanked in 2008, I lost my job. My husband lost his job. We lost our jobs from the same company at the same time. And we moved back to Florida. Like not only did we move back to Florida, like I was just like, hey, dad, hey, mom, like I'm coming back home and I'm bringing my husband with me. And, you know, it was just like, wait, what? (laughs) And we couldn't (laughs) we couldn't find jobs back in our field because it was the massive economic downturn of 2008. Like nobody was hiring. And like if I could have found a job, I would have never started feverish pops and we probably wouldn't even be on this pocket like I probably would mm. you know like my life would have gone in a completely different direction but like starting that business at that time like the timing of it all actually came together quite well I mean we learned some massive lessons in starting a business right mostly because we didn't have anything that we needed to really seriously start the business but we did it anyways and so like a lot of that kind of like blind faith of like just kind of stepping out on faith and I'm going to mm-hmm. do it mostly because we we did not have any other options. Like that kind of snowballed into, you know, we bought two carts off the luxury shopping website. Craigslist, like clearly I love Craigslist. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and then we just started making this product in my parents' home and you know, I always tell people that the frozen dessert industry is really gangster and really cutthroat because we were just like, we'll just go pedal these carts to schools at two o'clock. We'll hit the elementary school around the corner. Then we'll hit the high school a few blocks away and like, we'll make a few hundred bucks a day. And like, this will be fantastic. And like quickly, these old raggedy ice cream, ice cream trucks, like literally kind of pushed us out. Mm. And, you know, we were kind of afraid for our lives. Like it was crazy. And so, <laughs> but sometimes you need that. Right? Yeah. And but, but what ended up happening is we started going out at night and we started hitting up like nightclubs in Miami and like the fashion events in, in Miami. And so like after they would get out those events, we would literally be set up there and we'd give the security guard like three or four free like ice cream bars. So they would just let us, they wouldn't force us to, you know, move away into like the whole crowd. And like that became our secret sauce. Like we were going to go and target adults at night. And mind you, this was before gourmet food trucks, right? Like gourmet food trucks weren't a thing and they especially weren't a thing in Miami. And so we were able to capitalize on that for quite a while. And then that turned into our customer base, primarily being major brands and corporations. Like, Airbnb was our client when they very first launched. Google, mm. PayPal, Forever 21, Cadillac, Avino Lotion. And so we ended up carving out this really unique niche in the frozen dessert space, primarily focusing on creating an experience and leaning back on everything that we knew working in the experiential marketing industry and knowing that these brands wanted an experience, right? Mm. They wanted a social media moment. And they would literally spend money like putting their logo on anything and everything. And so Mm -hmm. we started doing that in the product, right? We would create alcohol companies would hire us and we would create alcohol pops for them. Or like Google hired us once to create popsicles um, or pops that matched every color of the Google logo. And then we would get really crazy requests, right? Like Tinder back in the day wanted us to create like aphrodisiac pops and like this tech company wanted us to like superimpose their logo on the popsicle. So when people licked it, like the tattoo would come on their tongue. Clearly we couldn't do that, but like (laughs) that, you know, that became our, our space and it really took off and we were featured on the Today Show and the Cooking Channel and Black Enterprise. Like it really snowballed into something of like our wildest dreams, but you could have never told us that we would have had the success that we had when we first started, like, you know, when we put down our last $2,000 on Craigslist, like you could have never told us that it would have turned into all of that. But see, I, I, I love the fact that you mentioned you went into this with blind faith because I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs do that, right? When they're launching these businesses, um, they don't have a plan on how to even, run a business, start a business, or even like the finances to do it, but they have this dream that they, they're hoping to like, you know, achieve through this this idea or concept that you have. And so 
one thing that I noticed is like you've been able to really, with your individual companies, you've been able to forge these really amazing partnerships with com- with organizations like Amazon. Thank you for listening so far to our chat with Felicia on her incredible journey. If you find her story as inspiring as I do, I really want you to hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Because by subscribing, you'll never miss an episode as we bring you new amazing women sharing their past of success each and every episode. Looking forward to having you tune in. Google, you said Tinder, you said uh, a few like alcohol brands, but how were you able to develop those relationships, especially when you were starting out in a new space that you, you weren't, that you didn't have those relationships already? If that makes sense, specifically with the ice cream. We did not have those relationships, right? Coupled with the fact that we built our company during an economic downturn where people like didn't have budgets, weren't spending money, like we're cutting back things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the thing that clicked for us, because we were trying to do, we entered an industry and we were trying to do it like everybody else in that industry, right? Like, let's make this product. Let's go to the schools. And when we realized that like, hey, we're building something different and we got to do it differently than anyone else. And we have this transfer transferable skills because we knew how the industry of like marketing and events work. Let's shift our focus to the thing that we knew. And I think sometimes when people leave corporate America or they leave one thing and they enter a new thing, they forget that like you have these transferable skills and you can connect the dots and do things a completely different way. And so like, that was the first thing that clicked for us. Mm -hmm. The second thing is we didn't have any contact. We had no contacts, but we were just like, well, let's go to where we think like these brands will be. So that's what made us start going to Miami. We weren't living in Miami at the time. We were living an hour North of Miami. And so like, I was just like, okay, there's a baby fat fashion show. Let's go to the baby fat fashion show. And just post up. And just literally post up. And what was happening is no one that attended the baby fat, you know, um, I wanted to call it a concert, fashion show <laughs> knew that they didn't know that baby fat didn't pay us to be there. Right. Like they had no idea. But what they started to do was associate us with like that experience. Right. And so we just literally start showing up to everywhere we thought like, you know, PR people and like brand managers and marketing managers were going to go. Now this stuff is very easy to find. Right. Back then it wasn't as easy other than like, all right, let's pick up new times and see where all the events and fashion shows are going to be. And like, let's just show up there. And so like my advice to people is like literally show up to where your ideal audience is going to be. Like show up to where the brand that you like literally show up. Right. And sometimes this costs you something. A lot of times it doesn't cost you anything. And then the other part is like create a spearfish list. Like I do that all the time now where I'm fundraising for fundraise for, you know, Center for Black Innovation. I fundraise for, for Black Ambition and largely what I, you know, most of my time is spent. But like a spearfish list will give you a level of clarity of to who you want to work with. And so oftentimes people say, I want to work with big brands. And then you'll ask them like, well, what big brands do you want to work with? Oh, I don't know. Then like you can't just pull it out the air and it's not going to fall on your lap. Literally (laughs) put a list together, you know, and like what Russell Bronson or Branson calls this like your dream 100. Right. I call it spearfishing. And you literally put together a list of like 10 or 20 brands that you say, I, these are the companies I want my brand associated with. I want a contract from, I want to be able to do work with that helps you, that one that makes it just clear for you. And then you start thinking, well, let me look at the brands or companies that they currently work with because their success leaves clues, right? So let me look at who they're currently mm-hmm. work, working with. The other part of the, that is like, Okay, then let me also put a list together of companies that are just like this, that are regional and local, right? Because sometimes those are a little bit more accessible. You get some social proof, you get some testimonials, you get like some, you know, a, do some good work. And then you can climb to those bigger, those bigger corporations as well. But oftentimes the simple stuff like is not, people just don't do it, right? But mm-hmm. getting the FaceTime of the person by literally being genuinely interested in what that brand has going on and showing up and making those connections, like no amount of new technology replaces like that. And like, that's mm-hmm. my advice to people, like literally break it down, 
make it very clear who you want to reach out to or, or, you know, who you want to work with, and then making it a point to show up in those areas, show up in those conversations so that you can be able to pitch and they know who you are and you are on the radar of the people that can say yes to your product or service. Mm -hmm. Now on the other side of the spectrum, like, you know, entrepreneurs will have a concept, they'll launch the business, they'll have like a few great years and maybe they hit a, like they hit a a valley in their journey. And sometimes they get stuck in that, that space called failure. Right. Mm -hmm. So I saw like your TEDx Jamaica talk about what is your failure story. And so I wonder, and I know this because I think it's like important for folks to share their journey and share like, look, this happened. This is how I got out of it. If you're in a similar space, this is how you can do so as well. But how important do you think it is for you know, entrepreneurs to share their failure story? Oh, extremely important. I have, I I will tell people I've probably failed more times than I've succeeded. Right. And people sometimes brush it off when I say that, but I'm like, it's, if I, I, I fail probably at least once a day, if not multiple times a day, I just got off of a meeting before this that didn't go that well. Right. And so mm-hmm. I think it's really important because if we don't do that, especially people with voices and platforms, we're doing a disservice to the people that are looking at our journey, right? And and mm-hmm. trying to be motivated by it. So when they have their first hiccup or their first thing that doesn't go that well, or they need to be able to pivot, they think they internalize it and they often quit too quick in the journey, right? My mentor, um, Myron, always says, disruption always follows intention. And if you don't realize that pattern, you will quit in the middle of your ins- assignment. And so what does mm-hmm. that mean? When we have the best intention about what we're doing, right? Or we set an intention about what we want to do. We want to start a business. We want to grow a business. We want to raise money. We want this specific career. We want this car, like whatever, whatever it is. Realize that once you set that intention, you are going to be tested. There's going to be some sort of disruption that is going to happen in your life and ultimately a series of disruptions. And if you do not realize that, then you will quit in the middle of your assignment because you are thinking that is the moment that's telling you to jump ship. Mm. And so a lot of us just need to be committed to our journey uh, more and knowing that there's an ebb and flow. Things are going to go well and things are not going to go so well, right? Things that you're going to have a dip in finances and then you'll be able to, to um, you know, be able to re-up. And that's literally the journey of entrepreneurship. Yeah. And that's why I like have a love and deep passion for anyone that decides that this is their journey because you literally can have a up and down multiple times a day and it feels Listen. quite chaotic. It does, yes. but it's the reality, right? Like I've run out of money several times launching this, all these businesses, right? So like, what do you do when you run out of money? What do you do? You plan, right? And so like, you know, there. I, I remember even with like, um, you know, CFBI, like our, like, I think it was, I don't even remember what time of year, but like we literally had maybe one more thing of payroll in the bank, right? And we we're just mm. like, my business partner at the time, and I have two, my husband and then another person and was like absolutely freaking out, right? And he's a worst case scenario type of person. I am at most times a very optimistic person. And he was like, oh my God, what are we going to do? We're going to have to like, let every go. I was like, no, like chill out, take a breath. And the same thing I said before, let's put a list together of people or organizations that all of us that are in like, I don't I'm trying not to say Rolodex because it sounds so old in our context, (laughs) right? That we can put together, that we can have conversations with and be able to raise the money that we need in order to get through this hump. And so for a lot of us, it's just calming the heck down and Mm -hmm. saying, I can fix this, right? Who do I need to have a conversation with? Who do I need to make a new offer to? Who do I need to call that owes me money in order for me to just get through this hump and then take the time to strategize so that you can mitigate this happening again? And so a lot of us just freak the heck out in moments where we need to calm down and put a plan together. There's always another offer that you can make. There's always another person that you can have a conversation with. There's always something to sell. And like as an entrepreneur, I think that's one of the greatest things that we have to combat, 
you know, this looming recession is that like, if you know how to make money off of your skill set, off of your mindset, off of the tool set that you have, you will never have problems, but you will have problems if you only look at them as problems. And I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but every single time that we came across like those, those problems, and there were quite a few, right? Not just with that in an organization, but things that I've done in the past, like, you know, we almost had to close the door with feverish twice. And like, my dad gave me the same advice, right? He was just like, he, he was just like, you know, at one time I ran my company into $300,000 in debt. Like you're just in a little bit of debt, like go out and sell some popsicles. And I was just like, that's not the advice that I want to hear, but he was <laughs> right. You got mm-hmm. product in the freezer, you got carts, you got a website, like go out and fix the problem. You don't have problems when you have all the things that you need. You only have the problem because you are so focused on the problem that you cannot plan. And like, that would be my advice to people in those moments. The other part is just making sure that you financially plan better, but like things come up all the time where there's like these kind of do or die moments financially, or, you know, a client says no, like there's so many different things. Mm -hmm. And it's, I always tell people just take a step back, breathe, calibrate yourself and your emotion Take your emotion out of it a little bit so that you can make a logical decision on how to move things forward. Yep. So your work has been featured in two Harvard Business School case studies. And in the simplest of terms for the audience, how would you describe your entrepreneurship ecosystem? Ooh, I mean, it's it's something that my husband, Derek, and I built in Miami for almost 10 years, right? And we built it because we didn't have the community that we needed when we initially took on like VC capital for feverish pops. I did not have an uncle that was a lawyer that could negotiate our term sheet or even tell us it probably isn't the best deal for you to take. Mm. I didn't have any friends that had taken on investor funding or like, and, and realizing that, Hey, we were entrepreneurs. We felt that we were like, had a good network and things like that, but we didn't have community. And I think for a lot of entrepreneurs that end up doing either social impact work or becoming like kind of ecosystem builders, it's usually you're building the thing that doesn't currently exist and you're building Mm -hmm. the thing that you needed to exist when you needed it the most. And you don't want that path to be as hard for others. And that really kind of summarizes why we started Center for Black Innovation and even Black Tech Week, right? It became a part of, of of that story of just like building the community because entrepreneurship is lonely and you do need community. You do need resources. And then you also need to be able to be a resource to, to others. And, um, you know, that's the ecosystem that we built. That's kind of like the legacy of Black Tech Week because we sold it at the beginning of this year. But like, oh, wow. those are the reasons why, and then being able to create opportunities for others and be a magnetic resources for the, everything that our communities need. I love that because I mean, it's so true. I I mean, I started my company basically because I didn't see it. Well, I was probably naive and I didn't know of any black ran PR firms that were really catering to black and brown communities. And so I've, I essentially launched us too with like no funding, no, no lawyers, just no roadmap. And you're just building the thing that you were hope you hoped existed you know, while you were growing up or whatever. So, yeah, yeah, I think we're kind of in the same boat there. And so your love of entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs has led you to now your current role as the CEO of Pharrell's Black Ambition Opportunity Mm -hmm. Fund. How did you end up here? (laughs) I got asked by Pharrell's chief of staff, I guess almost, almost two years ago now, to come lead Black Ambition. And you know, I, most people think that that was an easy decision. It wasn't the easiest decision at the time because we had just launched the Center for Black Innovation, so which was like a rebrand of what we were currently doing. I had just raised some significant money for it, but I also knew it was time for me to leave. Mm. I had started to say that out loud to others, if that makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's an interesting thing when you make a like declarative statement about your life and like the new stages that you want in your life, how things, not to sound like cheesy Oprah, super soul Sunday ish, but like (laughs) the universe really truly does conspire Mm -hmm. to like help you 
when you say, this is the thing that I now want to do, right? It wasn't like, it wasn't plainly like, I want to go lead like Pharrell's Black Ambition Opportunity Fund, but everything that I said that I wanted to do in this next stage of my life and career is encompassed in the work that I get to do now, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest things that were a part of it was being able to directly invest and fund Black and Latinx entrepreneurs. Because with all the community impact work and all the tech work, and we were able to connect the dots for founders to be able to get access to capital, we weren't able to get to the point where we were directly investing in the entrepreneurs. And I got tired of hearing companies and funds and organizations that didn't look like us constantly ask, like, aside from money, like, what else are your entrepreneurs in your community and at Black Tech Week and at the Center for Black? Like, what else do they need? I'm like, the money that you keep putting aside, that is what they need. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> that is what they need, right? They are over-mentored. They're underfunded. They need the money. Let's stop playing. And so um, Black Ambition, that's what we do, right? And so, you know, we invest in Black and Latinx and HBCU startup founders at a high level, and then we connect them to the resources, and then we take them through a cohort-style mentorship program, and then we create content, right? And so we look at it kind of like the four Cs. And so, you know, community, capital, content, and then care. And so we create some really great content for entrepreneurs, finding like some of the dopest people in so many different spaces and kind of bringing them into community and getting them to tell their stories and what Pharrell often talks about is like sharing the codes. We get people to share the codes, like not this surface stuff, like go out and do a good job and work hard and put your head down. Like, no, this is how I did it. This is the conversation that I had. This is the amount of times I had to follow up. Like tell them directly what they need. And then we also look at entrepreneurship from a holistic standpoint. So that's where the care part comes in that foresees, right? We have a program with uh, this company called Evoke that provides mental health and self-care and wellness support for our entrepreneurs because people are always telling the entrepreneurs go out and get a hundred no's so you get to that yes and no one fortifies the entrepreneurs to actually handle multiple no's that is not easy Mm -mm. and it's depressing and it's debilitating and we are seeing too many people take their life or, or or lose their life to suicide or depression, or drugs and alcohol that are amazing people with amazing visions and dreams that just don't have the right tools and practices and people around them to manage the ebb and flow, the disappointment, but then also sometimes, you know, the joy of being able to build something and oftentimes being the first person in your family or your community to do something. And we Mm -hmm. have to prioritize healthcare mental health and wellness for entrepreneurs and specifically for black and Latinx entrepreneurs. Like that is above, I mean, getting them the capital, absolutely. But making sure that they can manage the capital well and show up and support their team is something that I think not enough of us are thinking about that part of the equation that is extremely, extremely important. And so that is the work that in short that we do at at Black Ambition. And I've been so honored, you know, from the very beginning conversations that were started about like, what would it look like for you to come lead this and build this and shape this and literally build it up from the, from the ground up in a lot of ways. And so it's been a, it's been a really cool journey, but when we think about, you know, within two years, we've invested in 65 entrepreneurs, Oh wow! you know, in two years, we've, we've mentored 500 entrepreneurs and a lot of those entrepreneurs now have their products in like all the Target locations across the United States and the Marriott's across the United States. And, nice. you know, one of the companies that we just invested a million dollars in literally last month just got named, you know, Time Magazine's most innovative product of the year. Like these are companies that are phenomenal, phenomenal, but are still constantly getting told no by oftentimes investors that don't look like them. They don't understand that culture is an asset. They're not picking up the phone. They're not doing what they say that they're doing. Meanwhile, we have these companies that are succeeding and building despite not having the resources. So imagine Mm -hmm. what they would do when they have everything that they need. And that's for us, like the epitome of Black ambition. It's creating a pathway to entrepreneurship and through entrepreneurship where they are uninterrupted moving forward because we know everything that has interrupted our communities in the past. 
And as much as we humanly possible, our goal is to build a pathway to entrepreneurship and through entrepreneurship that they're never interrupted by a lot of those things again. I love that. Share the code, like you said. So how do entrepreneurs get information on the opportunities available with the fund or if they qualify? Yeah, the best thing I tell people to do is join the email list. As cheesy as that sounds, (laughs) but our team at Black Ambition, uh, when I say these people care about putting, like our whole team, like cares deeply about putting the team, putting people on to opportunities, like I don't know if I've seen a better team craft an email with the intention and the resources that go into that. And so I always tell people join the email list because, you know, we don't spam people, but like it's chock full of like resources, right? On the right type of resources that can amplify what you're trying to do. So that's it. And so I always tell people, you know, be on the lookout for that. We invest in five areas. And so tech, healthcare, consumer goods and services, media entertainment and the web 3.0 are the areas in which we um, invest in with the national prize. Mm -hmm. And then we do a lot of programming and regional pitch competitions throughout the year that may have a different, little bit of a different focus than the five areas we invested through the national prize. Nice. So email, it is email sign up. Mm -hmm. A couple more questions and then I'm a wrap, but as we are heading into a recession, do you feel like it's a good, this is a good time for someone to become an entrepreneur or what advice would you have for someone that's thinking about launching a business as we see all this news around a looming recession? Yeah. Are we heading into a recession? You know, it depends on, <laughs> it, it depends on who, who you're asking. I'll never forget in 2008, right? I, like, we started a business. We did not know it was the worst time to start a business. And so like a lot of that was just like blind faith. I remember having a conversation with someone who booked us, this wealthy person. And we, I was having that conversation and they were just like, they were like, the recession didn't happen to everybody. Like mm-hmm. it's a recession because you say it's a recession. I was just like, whoa, <laughs> right yeah. there. I was like, there was so much to unpack in that. And so my <laughs> advice to people <laughs> is like, The recession is not going to happen to everyone, right? And it does not have to happen to you in the sense of your mindset, right? So like Mm -hmm. have an abundant mindset. And I'm trying not to sound cheesy when I say that, but like abundance exists all around us, right? As human beings, we don't create abundance. It already exists. Like what we do as human beings is we create limitations. And those are the things that stop Mm -hmm. us. And so if you have a brilliant idea, launch that thing because people need it. And ultimately, the longer you take to launch it and align the resources, you end up doing a disservice to the people that you ultimately want to support because they need the thing and the solution to the problem that you're offering. And so yes, start that thing. Some of the biggest, most innovative companies always come out when there's a shift in the market, like we may or may not be seeing, right? Mm -hmm. And so look for those opportunities in order to be able to support people and help people. And then you also get to be well-fed in that opportunity as well, but absolutely start. Love it. So I have some quick fire questions. I want you to just share the first response that comes to mind. First one is... What's the best advice you've ever received? Ooh, the best advice I've ever received was at like 19, 20 years old, where James Amps told me, closed mouths don't get fed. Best advice. (laughs) Describe who you are in three words. Funny, water baby, and uh, community centered. (laughs) Are you a let's meet in person or hop on a Zoom kind of girl? Oh, I'm a functioning introvert. So it literally depends on the day. It could be either (laughs) or. What's one thing you still want to learn? Oh, man, there's more than one thing. Uh, I still want to learn how to dance. (laughs) To dance? (laughs) I do not... Listen, I'm half Jamaican, half American. Both of my cars should be remote because I am probably one of the worst dancers ever. <laughs> so I still want to learn how to dance and speak Spanish. Let me let me throw that other one back in there. <laughs> and what's the last show you, you binge watched? Ooh, the last show that I binge watched. 
Lord have mercy. I fell asleep on something yesterday, so that doesn't count. Uh, <laughs> that means don't uh, watch it. <laughs> that means definitely. And that was Harry and what? Uh, mm-hmm. Megan. I fell oh, no, really? I'm trying to watch that, that thing. I've tried to watch that thing twice and I've felt fallen asleep on it both times. So that's you're like the third person um, that has said that to me. They've fallen asleep on it. I'm trying to I'm I'm into the whole like documentary on it, but I, I have to like sit down and really focus on it. You know what it is? Person. I just know that we're not getting the most honest like yep. anything, right? Like things have been wide, like edited. No, you can't say like and you know, working adjacent to the entertainment space i just i just know you know so like yeah there's i feel like there's nothing new that i'm gonna learn and i'm not looking like for salacious stuff but i'm looking for like honesty right yeah. about some things that we i think as black people have assumed that's happened that you're not even hearing mm-hmm. and so we know what that reality is right and i think there's room to be able to candidly say that vulnerably and honestly without it being so like media trained right yeah. or like and you know that yeah. you're in the PR space and so there's just I think more people want honesty and, and, and vulnerability when we are literally seeing things so we don't think that we're crazy and you're not gonna get that in that you know what I mean no so you're not like, uh, yeah yeah that's probably a longer answer than you wanted but... <laughs> and then lastly what's next for you what are you working on or Ooh. who are you working with currently? They got something brewing with. The honest answer about what's next is a three-week vacation. <laughs> like that Ooh. is that is that is what's next. Ooh, Literally, nice. right? As of next next week is is taking some real good time off to reset and recharge and then like catapult things for next year. Who are we working with? We just put out a new podcast. So like the So Ambitious podcast I that saw. I'm really excited about. Okay. You know, we have Chanel is one of our really amazing partners. And so we're planning like a two day experience for our entrepreneurs at the Chanel headquarters in New York that I'm I'm really excited about. Oh, nice. And then, you know, launching launching the prize again next year. It'll be our third year and being able to invest in another 30 plus really dope and amazing ideas or those are the things that really excite me you know, after the vacation, after the vacation. Okay. okay. Get through your vacations. I'm sure it's well-deserved. <laughs> Felicia, thank you so much for joining me. Where can everyone follow, um, like, subscribe to all the gems yeah. they have? There's so many more questions I wanted to ask and so many things I wanted to kind of <laughs> unpack. But I know we're part two. Time. We'll have to do a part two. <laughs> look, you, look, you're claiming it. I'm going to reach out to your assistant to schedule it. But yeah, where can everyone follow you and find you on social? Sure. Um, Me personally, at Felicia Hatcher on everything, because it's easy for me to remember. And then Black Ambition Prize, if you want to learn more about the epic work that we're doing there. We're pretty much the same handle on everything on social as well. All right. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you all for listening today. Thank you to our guest, Felicia Hatcher. This show is hosted by me, Drina Whitfield, produced by Kena Williams and Blake Lou Merwin, and edited by Matt Pro. If you love today's episode, we'd love to hear from you. So please leave us a review. Be sure to subscribe and join us next time as we continue to uncover the fascinating journeys behind the successes on how I got here with Drina Whitfield. Oh, and if you want to keep up with me, follow me on Instagram at Drina Whitfield. You can follow the show at How I Got Here underscore. And of course, you can follow with PR at with PR. That's W E T I T E.